Well, good evening. I'd like to invite you to uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, please. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, no problem. Uh, there's one in front of you. If you're one of those folks who has a Bible on your phone, I invite you to swipe to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be reading that here in just a second. This is what I intended to preach last week, but we had our brother from Russia, Rahman, in, and he wanted to share a few words, and I thought those words needed to be shared and lingered upon. So I came up and was intending to preach this and just kind of went off the rails, and I think it was, I hope it was good, because it was a great reminder for me. But this is what I intended to preach tonight. It's in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's in Matthew chapter 5. Two weeks ago, I preached in our Summer of Love series, How Do We Love Enemies? Now, as we've learned this summer, that Jesus has rezoned our neighborhood, and when we talk about loving our neighbors, there is not one person we encounter that we cannot call neighbor. And this is really, really tough stuff. Because some of the people we encounter are called enemies. Now, what we talked about two weeks ago, and this is important for where we're headed tonight, as a follower of Jesus Christ, we have no right to call someone else enemy. It's getting tougher, isn't it? We had this neighbor issue, now even our enemies, we can't call them enemies. Well, who are our enemies? Well, enemies are those people who call, watch, us enemy. So tonight we're going to look at a paragraph right there where we were a couple weeks ago. What happens when those enemies really come at us and persecute us? This is really tough stuff. Now, we've got to learn to love even our enemies and those who persecute us, see them as valuable to pray for them and love them indiscriminately. Why? Because that's how God loved them. And if we are children of God, we need to be like father, like son, like father, like daughter. And so the passage we're going to look at tonight, if you thought love your enemies was tough, wait till we look at this eye for an eye passage, this famous passage. So I'd like to look at that now. Would you join me in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38? Hopefully you're there. If not, it's on the screen. We're going to read this, and then we're going to talk about it. And then we're going to pray through it at the end of this sermon time. And then at the end of our service, we're going to pray for Sid, Kathy, Robin, and myself as we head to Kenya. All right? Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38. Okay? Here Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Pause. Has anyone, even if you've never been in church, heard this stuff too? Yes, eye for an eye, yes. Jesus says, these folks have heard it. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, this paragraph, when American Christians 
I think, come to this. Right at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry where he's talking all about the kingdom of God that's available to all the wrong kinds of people. Then Jesus gets into it and he says, this kingdom isn't just available, this kingdom is livable. But it's livable if you trust me and put all your weight on me. You build your house upon me, the rock. It is livable. When American Christians come to this paragraph, we say, Jesus, mm, this is two things. Impossible. Absolutely not can I live this way. This is not livable. I like that stuff about I'll fly away, oh glory, but this turn the other cheek business, no thank you. The second response that we as American Christians, I think, tend to take is this. If it ain't impossible, we say, Jesus, <laughs> you are mistaken, my friend. What you really mean is, what he really means is, turn the other cheek so you can get enough momentum to swing around and sock them back, dude. That's what Jesus really means. Because this isn't livable. I'm here to tell you that as tough as it is, I wish it wasn't here. It's livable. And it's livable because Jesus lived it. The ethic of the Sermon of the Mount is just not good stuff, Jesus' teacher. So many of my non-Christian friends, I respect Jesus as a teacher. This is not good teaching. This is ridiculous. But it's livable. It's not just because he's a good teacher. It's because this is the blueprint for his life. He lives what he says, and we can too. We can't turn the other cheek. We can't do these things we're going to talk about this evening without Jesus. If we could, everybody would do it. Martin Luther King Jr., every day of his life, part of his rhythm of life with Jesus is he read front to back Matthew chapter 5 to Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and he said in prayer, he went back through his day and said, where did I live the way Jesus lived in the Sermon on the Mount? And where didn't I? Talks about anger, talks about lust, and he talks about this turning the other cheek and because Martin Luther King lived this way with Jesus who lived this way, in his power, he changed the world and changed the movement and showed us that it is livable, even if it feels impractical in a violent world. The kingdom is not just available, it's livable. Everything that Jesus said he lived, and he gives us the power to live it out if we live it with him. That's what I hope we'll see tonight. What we're going to see tonight is Jesus giving us two commands, one at the beginning of the paragraph, one at the end of the paragraph. The first command is basically, don't retaliate. And then the end of the paragraph, he says, and by the way, don't just not reciprocate, eye for an eye. Don't retaliate. He says, by the way, why don't you give them something too? Whoa. I'm telling you, it's going to ratchet up tougher as we go, okay? So just get ready. And, and it's not like the Six Flags ride where you can just go and then it's like all downhill because the next paragraph is what we looked at two weeks ago and he talks about loving and praying for your enemies. So he's got those two commands. Don't retaliate and then give. And then he gives three illustrations. Y'all see in the text or on the screen, three illustrations. If someone does this, if someone does that, if someone does this. And what these illustrations are is this. If you are a kingdom person, this is the type of response a kingdom person might have if somebody comes at you and persecutes you. This is the typical response if you've been living with Jesus to try to live like Jesus, the way he lived, in his power, this is how a kingdom person might respond. So the three big questions in between those two commands are these, and this is what we're going to see tonight. 
Let's look at these big questions. The first one is this. How does a kingdom person respond to personal injury? How does a kingdom person respond to personal injury? Now, in America, we see on the news all the time that we live in a violent country. Do y'all know that uh, I've heard in Russia and other countries that I've been to, when my wife and friends are afraid for me to go to Russia, all these Russians are afraid for me and their people to go to America. Because they wonder, they see this as a violent world. But still, you may not ever be threatened physically. But what you will be threatened with, like we see in this illustration Jesus gives us, is a personal, maybe, insult. So this is how do we respond to personal injury or personal insult. Someone is going to have an issue with you and call you enemy. How do you respond? The second illustration that Jesus gives, how does a kingdom person respond to personal conflict? This is that sue you passage that we looked at. How do you respond when somebody wants to take you in a civil way, they want to take the shirt off your back? And then the third illustration he gives us is how does a kingdom person respond to personal infringement? Someone in a position of authority or otherwise who wants to put you out. Maybe this is the passive-aggressive person in your life. How do you do all of these things as a kingdom person? Because I'm convinced the kingdom is livable if we're living it with the king. This is how Jesus lived and loved. And let's get back into our text and look at first the command as we get into these questions. You with me? Look back at verse 38. Here's another one of those, you have heard that it was said's. Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Where do you think they heard this phrase? Old Testament. Deuteronomy. Not just Deuteronomy. Man, what a beautiful church. Y'all must have been paying attention in the Baptist Sunday schools y'all grew up in. It ain't just in Deuteronomy 19.21 for you Sunday school note takers. It's also in, close Mark, Leviticus 24.20, and it's in Exodus 21.24. Throughout generations of Israelites, in their law, they have some variation of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, fracture for fracture, uh, toe getting cut off for toe getting cut off. And so this was actually a good thing. Why was it a good thing? Because in the Old Testament day, generation after generation, not just Israel, but all the tribes that roamed around jockeying for land and position, and God's people were no exception, even though I think it grieved God that they're running around acting like every other Tom, Dick, and Jane, beating the crap out of everybody. Sorry I said crap. <laughs> what happened in that day is they did worse things than say crap. When somebody poked an eye out, guess what they would do? Like every other nation, they would come and say, okay, you took my eye, you've disgraced me, I'm going to take your life, and I'm going to take your wife's life, I'm going to take your other wife's life, and I'm going to take all your kids' lives. This law, eye for an eye, that is for Israel, is actually a gracious and progressive law. It was God humbling himself, I think, to these people to give them this law that says, if y'all are going to just be nuts, at least cap it. Bring an end to this cycle of vengeance and retribution. If somebody pokes an eye, just take the eye. Don't take his life. This is actually a progressive law. Israel was the only people who had some kind of law like this. This is an incredible thing. Let the punishment fit the crime. Gandhi famously said, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. And you know what? 
Gandhi is right. And Jesus knew way before Gandhi did that even though that was a progressive and good law to keep punishment in check, it was still a concession to this violent nature in us. And when Jesus talks about the Sermon on the Mount and this kingdom that is livable with the king, he knows and he is certain that if you live with Jesus and you follow his way, he said you will exceed the righteousness of all the religious folks who have followed the letter of the law, but I'll show you an even better and greater way beyond retribution. And this is what he says. You've heard that said, but I say to you. Again, I want to point out the Jesus principle. We read our Bible through the lens of Jesus Christ. When we look back at the law that was mentioned in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, when we look at all the laws mentioned in Exodus, the ceremonial laws, all Christians in America have no problem saying, you know what, we're not beholden to this law anymore because tonight I'm wearing some kind of polyester pearl snap mixed fabric shirt that would have been forbidden in the Old Testament law. There are ceremonial laws. How many of you have had a cheeseburger this week? This is forbidden in the ceremonial law, mixing dairy and meat, different animal products. How many of you have planted two different seeds in the same farm? No farmers in here? <laughs> there are so many laws that govern God's people then, but Jesus says to us, as followers of Jesus, that there was this people that God loved and he gave a good law. And they're sorting out what he's like, this Yahweh. And he made a covenant, faithful relationship with them. But Jesus came not to just wipe it away. He came to fulfill it and say, I am the light that is dawned. I'm the full revelation of who God is. Hebrews 1. In the old times they spoke in the prophets and the law. But in these days God has spoken through Son. John chapter 1, nobody's ever seen God, but Jesus, the word of God who became flesh and moved into the neighborhood, he has made him known. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Now, look at your Old Testament and sort out the shadowy revelation that we see progressing until the sun dawns in Jesus. Jesus says, but I say to you, because an eye for an eye does make the whole world blind, and I'm going to show you a better way, if not impossible way, but the kingdom is livable if you're with the king. But I say to you, this is that first issue. How do we respond to personal attack? Do not resist an evil person. What he means is don't retaliate. Don't retaliate. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. As plainly as I can say it, if somebody comes at you with a gun or a knife or otherwise, you don't pull a gun or a knife back on them. Oh man, I just said it. We are in Texas, and I'm not saying don't own guns. I'm saying that Jesus chose to lay down his life rather than take a life. When the guards in the Garden of Gethsemane pulled their swords on Jesus and his men, Peter took his sword and cut an ear off, and Jesus said, stop, and healed the enemy's ear, even when he was going to take his life. Because Jesus, by not retaliating, 
by not joining all the other kinds of movements that all the other false messiahs did that were armed movements, Jesus gives us a creative way forward. And if you can't call anyone an enemy, and if everyone's neighbor, even the Samaritan in the ditch you weren't supposed to touch, even the woman who is supposed to be stoned, even any blind person outside of there, even the demoniac who is going to kill Jesus or hurt Jesus, even the people in Nazareth, his own town, who wanted to throw him off the cliff, if you kill them, here's what you're doing. You are perpetuating a cycle of violence. What happens when someone draws a gun on me and I draw a gun on them? Very practically, I escalate the situation instantly. And we make an assumption, right? Well, I can't turn the other cheek. i got to draw on him first. Well, who says at 3 o'clock in the morning when somebody gets into your house that you're going to be able to draw on him and cap him? Who says, is there not a million more steps you can take before Z where you just end it? I know this is unpopular. Maybe this is why our church is so small in Dallas, Texas. (laughs) But I'm telling you, I want to tell you this because you're already thinking of all these contingencies. We always want to go to the furthest extreme. I'm going to tell you this extreme. I know that I'm told not to lust in my heart and cheat on my wife. And if I go to Kenya and I'm in some back country, and Robin and Kathy and Sid are somewhere because I missed a plane, and I'm all by myself, in the unlikely event that some woman comes in and says, hey, take me, I'm yours, even though nobody would figure it out, and even though it's hardwired into my flesh to act in this way that's contrary to the kingdom, I'm going to pray and trust that even in that most unlikely event, I will have been with the king enough to say, God, give me strength in this moment to resist. And I believe that if somebody in the unlikely event enters into your home, number one, I'm not laying down and letting them hurt my girls. That is idiotic. That's the other assumption that people make when they want to talk to me about guns. They want to say, well, you know, why aren't you going to stop them? You're just going to let them do this? Absolutely not. I'm going to find any creative way forward by the power of Jesus to stop this violence from happening. But I'm not going to perpetuate the violence in the cycle. Jesus didn't do this. And we want to explain this away to turn the other cheek. But I'm telling you, I wanted to tell you, because I sat on this for two weeks and even more. I want to tell you there's another way forward. But I think the people of Jesus cannot take up arms and kill someone because then they immediately cut off any chance of repentance. And we don't trust wholly, I don't think, the cross and the resurrection. Because I know that I'll go and be with Jesus face to face. I don't know about them. And as ridiculous as it is to live this way, I'm convinced that I can live it with Jesus' power. And I'm convinced that there are creative ways forward. And I'll tell you stories of people in this church who've had knives pointed to their chests. And they had a creative way forward. And they calmly talked their way out of it. And then the police came to them later and said, so glad you did. There are three other people in critical condition at Baylor, Dallas, because of these same guys that were hiding in the van that came out and whipped the snot out of them to an inch of their life. This person in the unlikely event in a movie parking lot had the presence of mind and the peace of God to find a creative way forward. They left room for repentance, and guess what? His fiance was in the car with him, and both of them left away. Because I believe we can put our full weight on Jesus Christ. And I believe every night I don't have a gun or a baseball bat under my pillow, and I beg God to keep us safe and protect us. And it's not a promise that he always will. And I'm keenly aware of that because I'm 
certain I'm going to get malaria in Kenya. <laughs> I'm just certain. But I want to be more certain that God is with us. I want to be more certain that God is with us. What is Jesus after? What do we do when someone wants to slap us on the right cheek? How does a kingdom person respond to personal injury? Injury. You don't retaliate. What's going on, what Jesus is really after, is not a home invasion, even though I spent a lot of time on home invasion, because that's what all you wanted to know anyway. What Jesus is after is when somebody slapped a guy on the right cheek, he's slapping him with his right hand, his back hand, and he's saying, pow! We had our guests that I can't say on record here talking to us about a particular culture in which men had several wives and they treated them like inferiors and they slapped them like you would slap your dog. But none of y'all slap your dog because you're Jesus people and you love dogs too. The person that Jesus is after in this illustration would slap a grown man with his backhand on the right cheek and he's saying, you're inferior, I'm going to treat you like I would one of my wives or my slaves or my children. It's an insult. So it ain't even for the unlikely event that somebody's coming into your home to do violence on you or your family. It's the very likely event that somebody is going to personally affront or insult you. And I want to give you two passages of scripture because I'm already um, spending more time on this than I wanted, but I wanted to spend a lot of time on this. I want, to write, I want you to write down two passages of scripture. Number one is 1 Peter 2, verses 21 to 25. When somebody was coming at me, I talked about this two weeks ago, I pasted this passage up on my desk, and it said, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was insulted, he did not hurl insults back at them. When he was spat upon, Jesus didn't spit back at them. And I said, if Jesus could do it, I can do it. And here's my big question here. What is stronger? What's stronger? Tit for tat? Or to stand up, to turn the other cheek and say, see me as a human being. And see me strong and resilient and resisting without resorting to what you did. You see all of a sudden this person is valuable and watch this. It forces him to see you as valuable too. I mentioned Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. up there. That's why this movement changed the world. Hopefully we'll go see Nelson Mandela statue, his apartment. He changed the world. 27 years in prison. And he came out and said, see me as a person. And he refused to pay back what had been paid to him. This is a kingdom person. The other verse of scripture I want you to write down, we don't have time for, but I may read quickly, is Romans 12, write this down, Romans 12, 18 to 21. 18 has been another gift to me. It says, as much as it's up to you, strive to live at peace with everybody even when people don't want to live at peace with you. And then verse 19, he goes through and says, do not take revenge. So if y'all don't like Jesus in his red letters in Matthew, like Paul in his black letters in Romans 12, as much as it's up to you, live at peace. And by the way, don't take revenge. Leave room for God to do that. God will judge we entrust ourselves, as Peter says too, to him who judges justly. He says, if your enemy is hungry, what? Feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. 
In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. He quotes Proverbs to people familiar with the Old Testament so they know that this carries over into the new day and new covenant. Do not, over, do not be overcome by evil, but what? Overcome evil with good. Romans 12, 21. There is not one verse in the New Testament that says Christians can or should use violence. Let me say that again. There is not one verse in the New Testament that says Christians can or should use violence. Oh, well, this is an argument for, from silence. That's what my seminary would say. It's an argument from silence. It's not in the scriptures, therefore this. No, no, no. For 300 years, Christians were known as the people who loved their enemies and fed the poor. For 300 years, Christians refused to take up arms in the military until Constantine came, and all of a sudden they put the cross on shields and banners to go and conquer the world without Jesus. Rahman, grandfather, stayed in a Russian prison for refusing to take up arms for the communist cause. Rahman's great-grandfather was in prison for refusing to take up arms and inflict violence on others in the name of country. Rahman's uncle, and on and on down the list, and all these Christians worldwide, I don't want to get into military service. I have so many family members here, and you're going to talk about Romans 13, and I think we should talk about Romans 13 over coffee. I think we should talk about the people I love so dearly who are in the military, people in our church, connected to our church, who have been, lots of people have been, and lots of people may still be in the military. I just, I just want to really strongly think, what would a kingdom person do if it comes down to friendly fire and in the name of country, you go and kill somebody that may have been a brother or sister in Christ. Or you shut off any chance that they would be. These are difficult questions, difficult, difficult questions that we as a church need to continue to, with grace and peace and wisdom and prayer, sort out. And I think it's always kind of an individual situation. And by the way, while we're at it, and I'm just opening all the cans of worms, let me open this one too. Okay? What about abuse? People tell me, what about abuse? You're supposed to turn the other cheek? Absolutely not. Because I think when you're told to turn the other cheek, it is this sense that you're, you're, you're saying, look at me, I'm a human being, see this, I'm valuing you above taking your life or inflicting injury on you, you should value me. But here's the thing, that's a moment type of situation. I'm saying don't fight. I'm saying flight. I'm saying use the forces at your disposal to detain this person with police. If you want to know what the church's stance on any of this is, cooperating fully with the law and getting them out of the situation. Because to turn the other cheek doesn't mean you keep walking back and saying, please, can I have another? Because you're married. Well, whatever this is, is not looking like a marriage. And this abuse needs to stop, and this needs to remove, be removed from the situation. So turn the other cheek, personal injury or personal insult, but it doesn't mean you're in a situation. This is where you need discernment, you need to let others know. What about abuse? All right, we've still got two more big questions and another command, huh? Well, that's the big one, okay? So Jesus continues on. He gives us two more illustrations of what a, a person, uh, how they should respond. He says, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. How does a kingdom person respond to personal conflict? 
Elsewhere, Paul talks about how stupid it is for Christians, between Christians, to get involved in lawsuits. He says, what kind of witness is that to the world? Now, this is a tough one, and this is another case of discernment. And this is another case where Romans 12, 18, where I referenced earlier, strive to live at peace with everyone as much as it's up to you, comes into play. But what Jesus is saying here, how does a person respond to personal conflict? It's radical generosity. In Jesus' day, the illustration he has in mind is when rich or greedy people would take their not-so-rich and bare-bones kind of people, and they would take them to court to get more of their possessions. And in those days, that people only had two cloaks, okay? So that's why when you hear, like, in the New Testament, if anybody has two cloaks, give somebody one. That's radical generosity. If somebody wants to sue you for it, boom, give them this cloak he wants, give him the other cloak. Radical generosity. Ridiculous, sacrificial generosity. Why? Because in those days, if you aren't going with two cloaks, you know what you are going to? To court in the marketplace? To meet this rich, greedy person who wants to take you out of house and home? You're going in your undies. Or worse. And in a shame-based culture in Jesus' day, just like the turn your other cheek thing, you're showing up and saying, okay, you want it? Here's what you're doing. I'm going to value you, but I want you to value me. What's stronger? Suing him back for all he's worth? Striving to live at peace and entering in the situation, trying to expose them that they may repent. This is a non-retaliation creative way forward as well. The third kingdom illustration. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. How does a kingdom person respond to personal infringement? It's extra mile love. It is beyond reciprocity and it's sacrificial. Why? Because God loves us beyond reciprocity. We could never pay God back. He gave us his son. When we were enemies, God gave, God loved we can never pay him back. So when we love and go the extra mile, we're loving like God loved us beyond reciprocity. In those days, what Jesus has in mind, again, in this illustration, is a Roman soldier had every legal right to walk with you from one place for one mile, and this is important, not one step more, but he would say, carry my shield, carry my helmet, carry my sword, carry my whatever. Roman soldiers had rights on Roman citizens to carry their stuff, to be their U-Haul truck for one mile. And Jesus says, go the extra mile. And I think what Jesus has in mind there too is surprise them and say, I'm valuing you at cost to myself. Perhaps you might have a creative way forward, repent and see me as valuable too, because I had a lunch date, friend. Just seeing if you're awake. This is the final command that Jesus gives us in this very difficult paragraph, but I'm convinced that the kingdom is livable if you're living it with the king. He says in verse 42, Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So the first command was don't retaliate, but then he frames this whole paragraph by saying, Give to the one who asks you. This is so tough because... You know that my wife <clears throat> is very involved in homeless ministry, and because living in Dallas, you know, uh, even now in Garland, uh, Richardson area, you're still 
in contact with people who are in need, people who are panhandling, people Emma saw yesterday, you know, people that live in the trees and when it's raining, it's just, you know, you're, you're in contact with them. And I would look at this verse and I would say, you know what, I need to just give it. Somebody asks for money, I got to give it. Don't refuse them. But then I think this is a place of discernment too, where I think the most loving thing to do, sacrificial, is to say, well, what is the most loving thing for this person? Now, you might make assumptions and say, I'm not going to give you food. I'm going to give you this or that or the other. Um, but I, I just think that's a place of discernment. I don't think Jesus is saying, give to the point of enabling. You with me? Again, Jesus' word goes, I think the command is to give. I don't know if it's to give exactly this, because what do the Rolling Stones say? You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you just might find you get what you need. You with me still? Still seeing if you're awake. Give to the one who asks, what's the most loving thing to do here? As we close, uh, I, I want to just communicate that this is one of the more confrontational kind of messages. I don't want it to be confrontational, though. I just want to say it as plainly as I can. Because I really, really believe that this is a livable way. I really, really believe that this is what Jesus has called us to. I haven't always thought this way. I know it's an unpopular way. But I really, really believe it's possible. But it's only possible to love this sacrificially. When we are soaked and seeped in the sacrificial love of Jesus. Then and only then is it going to make sense. And then and only then might you respond, the more you've been with him, the more you stayed at the foot of the cross to see his arms outstretched for enemies, then you can say if you stare there and sit there long enough and you think about God who reconciled the world to himself, every violent serial killer, every child molester, every person who's abused their wives and wives who've abused their husband, every husband who's abused his children, every mother who's abused her children, every person that's hurt you, scolded you, every person that is bombed and suicide bombed and drove a truck through a beach, every person who's taken a machete to a child's face in East Africa, every single person God has reconciled to himself. He's removed every single barrier if they would come and repent. And if you look and stay there hard enough and you begin to look up from you and at the foot of the cross, you see all these people. You see ISIS. You see Micah who killed people in our downtown city a month or so ago. You see these people and you say, man, maybe if they were loved the way Jesus has called us to love, maybe they would have joined me at the cross a lot sooner. Because when you look at the cross hard enough, you see there's no greater example of sacrificial love than the cross. Because at the cross, enemies are transformed into family. And God's children are transformed into those who love like the crucified king. How did he love? Radically, sacrificially, and indiscriminately. There's no greater example than the blazing center of God's love. 1 John, and 4, 1 John chapter 4 said, this is where we all started. This is love. God gave his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins when we were yet enemies. 
can't escape the cross. We're never beyond the cross. We can't love sacrificially in a selfish world without the cross. We can't love in the turn your other cheek, beyond reciprocity, extra mile love without the cross. So I want to close tonight with just a little bit of space as the worship team comes up. Just a little bit of space to pray a way that I found really, really helpful. And as we close off this Summer of Love series, you might have been wondering, when are we going to get to 1 Corinthians 13? Because you heard it at your sister's wedding, but you haven't heard it in our love series. But I wanted to save it because I believe that Jesus is the perfect image of the invisible God, like Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. And so when we look at this famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13, we see that love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. If Jesus is the word of God become flesh, and God is love, then I want us to sit quietly with this paraphrase of 1 Corinthians 13, if you'll allow it. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He does not dishonor others. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. Could we sit just for a few moments and think of those places in your life in which you don't look like that? But understand that you can't drum it up, but you can ask Jesus to abide in you, to transform you, and little by little you surrender more and more of your way to his way, and it makes this kind of sacrificial love livable when you're with the king. So in a few moments, we'll come to the table and respond, but I just invite you silently where you are to reflect upon this Jesus who reveals the God who is love. Would you spend a few moments here?